Luke 9, 46 through 56. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him beside his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he is who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. All right, we're gonna get we're gonna get to that moment because I think it's pretty humorous, uh, but but it's gonna take us I don't know three and a half hours. So anyway, if you have your Bible, so let's let's go Luke chapter nine. We've been walking very patiently, uh, really through all of these uh, verses in this chapter, and, and the way we've been doing it is by asking just a series of questions. Uh, and the the first question we brought to the table is is who is this Jesus? Like, like, like who is Christ? And, and my hope and my prayer, really every single time we gather together, is that we would walk away with a clearer picture of, of who Jesus is, what he's brought into our life, and how that changes the ways that, that we live. And now as we talk about that, uh, this chapter in particular has said, Okay, uh, Jesus is God's chosen one. Uh, he is our Messiah. In fact, God will speak through a cloud in the middle of this chapter and say, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And now, now what we've been trying to do is pay attention to, to what he says about our lives, but also what he has said about himself. And now in this chapter, there are three occurrences where Jesus will talk about being handed over to the hands of man, that he will, he will die at their hand, and, and really how that's for our benefit and for God's glory, so that, that we don't walk away being confused as to uh, what his mission is. So everything we see is about his credentials being put on display, so that when he dies, when he says, um, I'm going to suffer at the hands of man, I'm going to be killed, and then on the third day I'm coming again, we can say he's been truthful about all of this. We can, in faith, believe he is truthful about that, which is the most important part in our lives. And, and so with, with such a great um, importance, what we find is he's in this process where he will defeat sin on our behalf, where he will remove the sting of death. Now, now with that great purpose in mind, he fulfills this mission and this invitation of, of the good news of Jesus that, and, and what our response is that we would just simply follow him wherever he tells us to go. That simple, right? That's that's the call of the Christian life. If I say I am Christ-like, then I would walk in a manner that goes in the, to the places that he goes, and I would do the things that he has told me 
to do. And now we've been trying to build that out. Now, so that was our first question. Who is Christ uh, that we would give our lives to him? And then secondly, that question that we've been wrestling with that we kind of completed last week was, okay, if I am to follow Jesus, then what follows me? Uh, not in the sense of, hey, what do I get out of this? But, but how does God equip me to walk in a manner worthy of the truth of Jesus. And, and now, now what we've said is that what comes with us or what follows us is purpose and power uh, as, as we are activated for the ministry. Uh, what, we follow, what follows us is insight into who Jesus is and then an expectation for the work of the ministry. If you remember, uh, the, the disciples are gathered with Jesus and, and it's coming time for people to need to be sent home. There's only a small crowd of about 5,000 uh, and they say, hey, uh, these people need to go home so they can eat. And Jesus says, you feed them. And they say, we're in a desolate place. And, and that's so important for us to understand as a biblical community that the work of the ministry, as Jesus will say, is to go and feed people in desolate places. And we said desolation can be a state of our emotion, but also a specific location. And then what we find uh, as Jesus talks about our need to follow him, that, that we would deny ourselves, we would take up our cross daily. And so, so we said before we get to the crown, we have to be willing to go through the cross if that is what, what God has chosen for us. Uh, and then last week what we talked about was how we get to triumph in the truth of who Jesus is. Uh, and so, uh, and it kind of went through a bizarre path through the failure of the disciples as they were trying to cast a demon out of a boy, but, but in order for us to follow Jesus, we get to, to triumph in moments because of the truth of, of who Jesus is. Now, now, what that does is it leads us to this week in these three scenes, and we're going to ask uh, a, a third question. That, that, okay, since Jesus is who he says he is, and we simply say, okay, what follows me, and we're equipped to follow Jesus, now we ask, how does Jesus change our attitudes? How does he change our manner of living? And unfairly, we're going to try to tackle these three scenes in, in one week, and, and hopefully we'll do it uh, in, a, in a concise manner, but who knows? Judging by the way I gave our introduction and our welcome this morning, there's no telling, right? So, so what we're going to ask is, is this, is that as I follow Jesus, how does he change my attitudes towards myself, toward others, and then really towards, towards how we relate to God. And now, now the way we see that, as Heather read, uh, is, is we're going to see this done in a series of wrong actions. Uh, and then Jesus will, will lovingly come in and he will correct uh, what is wrong about these scenes and therefore giving us a model to, through which to follow. And, and now, as we say that, I kind of want us to take just a step back and I want to set up a backdrop. Uh, that comes out of John 13, okay? The scene is this. Jesus is just moments away from being arrested and going to the cross. Uh, but, but he's having, in John 13, uh, the big, John 13 really through 17 kind of paints this picture, but he's having his last supper with his disciples. And it's one of the most, uh, in fact, as I was reading it this week, I was like, man, we're going to come back at some point and we're going to walk very slowly the development of this scene, because what Jesus, what John tells us Jesus teaches them is really important to us. Uh, but nonetheless, it says in John 13, 
that Jesus is with his disciples. Uh, and and it put, he puts it this way. He said, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so, so what happens next is Jesus stands up, and it says he takes off his robe, uh, he ties a towel around his waist, he grabs a basin of water, and as we talk about showing the full extent of his love, he bends the knee, and he washes his disciples' feet. Now, it's, it's an incredible scene, because, uh, you know, you'll have Peter kind of step in, like, hey, I'm not worthy of this, and Jesus will say, if I don't do this, then you'll have no part in me. Then he's like, hey man, then let's just do a whole full sponge bath situation here. You know, not, not just my feet, Jesus. And, 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 which is weird, right? Um, no? Okay, I don't know. I don't know. Here we go. Alright. So he comes in, and as he's explaining, hey guys, I want you to see what I'm doing here. I want you to see that as I serve you, I'm putting something on display. I'm putting a model for you to follow. And then toward the end of this, uh, verse 34, Jesus will step in and he will start to explain what he's doing and he will give them this new commandment. And this new commandment is simply this, that you would love one another just as I have loved you. Okay? Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Then he says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this is so important for us to understand because our commissioning to love one another is based not on what someone else has done to us or what someone else can do for us. Our commissioning to love as believers in Jesus is to love in a way that Christ has loved us. And we should be a people who explore daily hourly, moment by moment, how deep this love is that Christ Jesus would lay his life down as a ransom for our sins. So really, the, the hard part of this is you come to the end of a road and you say, loving other people is it's not up for consideration. That we would love people the way Jesus has loved. And now, now, that's, that's kind of our backdrop for, for how Jesus has treated us. We would treat one another. And, and now, now, why do I want this backdrop if, if we're admittedly doing some time traveling, right? Because Luke 9 comes before John 13. So, so, so why do we bring John 13 up as a backdrop of Luke 9? And it's because uh, in, in John 13 is when Jesus will speak very clearly and very plainly what he has been putting in, on display the entire time. Okay? So he, it's, it's kind of like when we get to Luke 9, he's still modeling this and he's teaching them. And then when we get to this Last Supper, he'll say, Hey guys, apparently you're not getting it, so let me make it very plain. Have you ever spoken to your child like that? Like, like hey, how many more times do I need to describe this? So maybe if I speak slowly, which is always condescending, right? Um, unless you're the parent and then you're right. Uh, and so... So this, this is where we go. And so, so the disciples in each one of these scenes are going to show a lack of love. Okay? And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to bring correction 
that is motivated out of his love for them. And, and I, love, I love how merciful he is uh, in this scene. And so, so let's, let's get to uh, that, that first scene. So, so as we arrive here, what I don't know is, is the timeline. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if we are days past where we were last week, or I don't know if we were moments past where we were last week, but, but either way, um, a, a discussion uh, that quickly turns into an argument arises between the disciples, right? Uh, and essentially what they're saying is, who's the goat, right? Uh, of us, who gets to be the goat? You know, which I find ironic, because they're having this argument in the presence of Jesus. So my, argue, my belief would be that they're like, hey, okay, Jesus is, is really the goat, but who gets to be the goat in this group, right? Who gets to be the greatest among us? And that's where Jesus steps in, uh, in verse 47, and he says this, and I, and I, love, I love this. He says, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Okay, now... I used to read a verse like that, and it would freak me out. Like, you're, you're telling me that Jesus knows the reasoning of my heart? Like, like he, knows, he knows what's going on in there? He knows what's going on in my mind? That, that if he had that ability, then surely he wouldn't take me on. Uh, surely uh, there would be greater punishment because what I think about is worse than what I do at times. And, and if you knew how dark and deep it got, then surely there's no love to be had. And what we find, what I'm finding the more I read my Bible, is that yes, God is aware of those moments and God is lovingly bringing me to an understanding that His love covers all of that. And so knowing the reasoning of my heart the uh, disciples are having this argument about who gets to be the greatest. And, uh, and, and I think, it's, it's, to me, again, it's, it's really humorous. It's, it's, it's kind of like me walking up to, to Michael Jordan, right, and being like, hey, man, what you did in the NBA was pretty cool, but I played high school basketball at Hazel, uh, you know, and, and I was, you know, pretty good. I could have gone all the way, but Tarrant County College only had intramurals. Uh, and so, you know. But so, so they're, they're having this argument, and Jesus, Jesus steps in. He says in verse 47, he says he took a, took a child. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and, and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me right, receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you is, is great. For he who is least among you is great. Now, this is, this is what's called step parallelism, right? He, he kind of moves them along. He says, if you, if you take this kid, uh, then it's like you are receiving me. And if you receive me, it's like you're receiving the Father. Now, here's what you need to know about this kid that's been brought up. Uh, the Jews in this culture, they, they don't idolize children. In fact, children had very little significance in their lives until they were able to do something with their lives. Uh, and so, so, so Jesus is saying, hey, this person right here that you would deem insignificant, if you care for and you, you consider them as valuable, and it's like you are receiving me. In fact, he says, if, if you receive those you deem as insignificant in my name, okay, and, and I want you to note that, in my name, as he says that, because of my role in your life, 
then you're making room for me in your heart. And if you're making room for me in your heart, then this will give you access to the Father. Now, now, as, as this, the issue here looks like, it's who gets to be king on the hill, right? As Jesus has told them, hey, we're going to leave, regardless if they get it or not at that moment, uh, Jesus is going to leave. They're having a discussion with, hey, of the 12 of us, who gets to be the greatest? Jesus could have very easily picked one of them, right? In this moment, he could have looked and said, hey, I'm going to make John team captain, and then, you know, it would have been, he would be undisputed, right? He could have said, Peter's the guy. He could have said, Bartholomew. He could have said, Thomas. And Thomas would be like, well, I doubt that, right? No, get it? That's a doubting Thomas joke. Um, nonetheless, Thomas is a great guy. So he comes into this picture, and Jesus could have said, hey, here's going to be the team captain, but he doesn't, because who is greatest is not the issue. The issue on the table is a matter of the heart. Because Jesus could have declared one of them and then they would still argue and they would still bicker and they would still fight and they would still try to climb to see who gets to be the greatest among them. So what's being shown here, the issue on the table, and this is what Jesus exposes, is the lack of love for, for each other. Like it's not about the title, who gets to be captain. It's that we will live in a manner worthy that we are showing love for every single one of us. And so what Jesus kind of teaches in this moment is humility. And now, now he teaches them a lesson in humility, not to knock them down a peg, right? That's what we think. Like what, when, a, when we see a person who needs to be humbled, we're like, hey, let's knock them down a peg. But what he does is he shows them a way, a better path to saying, hey, if you want to be great, it comes to the lane of humility. It comes to the lane of of service. Paul will, Paul will talk about this as he describes Jesus, really as, as he worships Jesus in Philippians 2. It's one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. He will talk about this. He'll say this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, so like if Jesus has changed your life, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He's, he's given the church a, a, a checklist almost. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Then he'll say this. Let's, let's just ask yourself in this moment, does this describe my life? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he's going to describe the humility of Christ. Who did not, uh, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then he says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. So as we talk about what level of humility do we walk in with our li- in our lives with, with people that we love, right? We say we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, who is willing to do it all for the sake of the glory of God. So what, what happens here is humility paves the way for a continual love for one another. It does. Like, like, like nobody likes a conceited person, right? Um, unless you're a conceited person, then you really like yourself a lot. Nobody wants to fight for that guy. Nobody wants to serve alongside that guy. Nobody wants to, 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 to go into battle with that kind of a person. And Jesus says, hey guys, you're having the wrong argument. This isn't about who's the greatest among you. Because the greatest among you reveals itself in your willingness to serve one another. So that, that ends that scene. Because John's going to speak up. And again, I don't, I don't know uh, if... This gives me the belief that we're still in this same scene, that we've kind of been connected these last couple weeks, but either way, it doesn't really matter. Because it says, John answered, you know, Master, we, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So, so what's going to happen here is, is John is going to reveal a lack of love for believers who are not inside their group. Right? Uh, not, not, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, he'll show a lack of love for believers outside their group. And what Jesus is going to teach is, is cooperation. Okay? Now this is one, to me, uh, if, since the disciples will be, be the ones who kind of set the, the Christian church abroad and, and, and set a flame that kind of moves to the uh, edges of the earth, uh, what we're finding is this is like one of the first steps of denominationalism. Right? John steps in and he, and he says, hey, there was this guy who was doing things that we try to do uh, but he's not carrying a card that we carry. He doesn't wear the same T-shirt that we have. He doesn't have one of those bumper stickers on the back of their car saying, hey, uh, I'm with Jesus, right? And so we asked him to stop. Actually, we told him to stop. And Jesus says, don't, don't, there's no need to do that. In fact, he, he models cooperation. Uh, and and so, so, so this is why, okay, and this is kind of a sidestep, but this is why here at Merge, uh, we consider ourselves non-denominational. Uh, we, I, don't, I don't really think that any one denomination uh, has the right to carry the card saying, hey, we're most right. Uh, now, now, what we do have here as we talk about being part of the body of Christ is, is we have these um, tenets uh, that we, we consider essentials of faith. Uh, when it comes to, to how are we made right with God, we have these essential things. And so, so we talk about uh, the role of the Word. Uh, we believe the Word is sufficient. Uh, we believe God has plainly told us how we can be made right with Him through His Word. Uh, and then that brings us to the role of, of Jesus. And then that takes us to the love of the Father. And then that takes us to the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And then that takes us into living as a gospel-changed believer. Right? So, so we have these essentials that we don't waver on. We, don't, we won't come in next week and say, you know, there's Jesus and then there's also this other way. 
you can kind of pick and choose. We don't believe that. And so, so in these essentials, we find unity. Okay? And then we have these other things that we consider non-essential. Now, we're not saying they're not important. We're just saying they're not essential for dealing with the most important question you will ever have to a- answer. Like, how am I made right with God? Sin has destroyed my relationship with Him. How am I made right with Him? And the belief is through Jesus only. We believe that grace through faith. So, so we have these non-essentials, and they can, boy, can they range from one end of a spectrum to the other. We can, we can talk about the merit of having a guitar uh, that leads us to worship to all the way to the end of, of the evidence of a person truly believing in Jesus is that they can all speak in tongues. Uh, and if they can't speak in tongues, then they are not um, believers at all. Right? And so, so that ranges. Uh, in fact, I have, I have some really good pastoral friends that I'm like, man, you don't think I'm going to, G- to heaven? Uh, and I'm like, well, here's where we're at. So, so we call those non-essentials. And we have those going on in this room right now. And in non-essentials, what we do is we offer each other liberty. We say, hey, hey, this, this is important, but we can still be friends even if we differ. We can, we can differ if we believe in uh, predestination or free will. Um, we, we can differ if we believe you should raise your hands or you should keep your mouth shut. We, we can differ on those opinions, and we can offer each other liberty to pursue the Father um, in, in those matters. Now, the way we talk about it here is that in essentials we have unity, in non-essentials we have liberty, but in everything we do we cover it with love. So we don't, we don't try to chastise one another, and so, so we can walk in cooperation. What that means for us here at Merge is we can, in our own city, we can walk in cooperation with the Methodists and the Baptists and the Church of Christ and, and, and the Assembly of God, and, and we, can, we can say, hey man, we're not carrying the card saying we're most right. What we are saying is that Jesus is the only way. He's changed my life. Now the anthem of what I do next is to help those who are far from God find life in Christ. And I think in this moment of denominationalism that John is bringing to the table, Jesus says, hey, if they're not against you, then they're for you. So we can allow them. And so, so, so if humility paves the way for a continual love for one another, and then cooperation simply opens the path where ministry is, is multiplied. Because what is this guy doing? This guy has discovered that the only way to cast these demons is at the name of Jesus. And so he's promoting the ministry of Jesus in his very actions, and Jesus says, don't get in the way of that, John. And John's like, but, but he's not part of our group. He's not willing to get the tattoo. And says, this is my church. Which, I'm, we don't have those tattoos. And if you do, I think that'd be really lame. I'm just being honest with you. So, last scene. Last scene, we find... In, in, in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, being Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. Okay? Now, if there was a... I want to stop here for a moment because this changes the tone. Right? Uh, in fact, almost all commentators will, will kind of separate this verse from 51 to 52 and they will say how significant this was. 
because when Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, he sets his face to go and die. Right? We'll find out in John, uh, as Jesus will tell his disciples, hey, we're, we're going to Jerusalem, uh, and his disciples will be like, hey, um, they don't like you there. Uh, so how about we avoid the places where they don't like you, and we go to the places they really do like you. And Jesus will say, no, I'm, I am determined. My face is set toward Jerusalem. And that, that's important because uh, even though we're almost done with chapter 9, it'll be significant as we go ahead. So, so where we go is next, is verse 52. So he sets his face toward Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And, and now, um, now here, here's some things you need to know. Uh, the Jews and the Samaritans were not on friendly terms. Uh, and ma- mainly because the Jews referred to the Samaritans as half-breeds. Uh, if you're a, a Harry Potter fan, you know, it's like, hey, there's, there, there's a, is it a muggle? Mo- yeah, dorks. Um, I knew it. I just didn't want to say it. So, anyways, so they're half breeds. He said they're, they're half Jewish and they're half Gentile, meaning they are inferior. Uh, in fact, there, there are some places that that the Jews will regard dogs of more significance than the Samaritans, uh, and so so they are not on good terms with one another. And one of their chief complaints that they have was was where do you worship God? And, and the Jews will say, well, you worship in the holy city in Jerusalem. And, and the Jews say we worship on, on Mount Gerizim. Uh, and, and now what happens in this moment, I believe, is that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. And the Samaritans say, no, 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 this is where we worship. And Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem. And they say, then we don't want any part of you. We, w- we want you gone and now you want to talk about a matter that escalates rather quickly as they're leaving when the disciples uh james and john saw this they said lord do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them right now here's the thing that's happened before uh now i i don't know where we are in the timeline of james and john and where they were about casting demons or not casting demons if they were in that crowd or not, but I would believe in faith, this would be a pretty significant prayer that you're praying, right? Like James and John are so offended. They look to Jesus and they say, hey, how about you take a step back? We're ending this now. We're going to pray down fire from heaven to end this entire village. And I, I love what Jesus does. Verse 55, he turned and he rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Honestly, then he looks at me, he's like, you idiots. Like, seriously, we're, we're going we're gonna to murder these people on this, on this offense that you have? Like, like, no, let's just walk to the next village. We're going to Jerusalem. We're not living here. We're just coming to the Holiday Inn. That's all we're trying to do. So he comes in, and the issue is, is James and John in particular are revealing a lack of love for their enemies. That's what it is. And it's there, and we're going to just put quotations around that. 
Okay? These are people that James and John don't like. And I, I think they, they didn't like them before this offense, but, but regardless, if this was it, these are our enemies. And, and what Jesus puts on display is mercy. Because could, could Jesus take offense to the way the Samaritans treat them? Absolutely. Could Jesus call down fire from heaven? Why not? He's been doing some incredibly miraculous things all along, right? He's been raising people from the dead. He's been casting out demons. He's been feeding 5,000 people with just a couple of loaves of of bread and fish. So surely he's showing there's nothing he's incapable of doing, but what he chooses instead of, of being most right is he offers mercy. Now, why does he offer mercy? I don't know. How about we just go spend some time in Acts chapter 8 when the gospel is preached in Samaria and the, these people in these villages come to faith in Christ Jesus. And I wonder in this moment when Jesus just kind of keeps on a walking and he's merciful because he knows that God is not done with those people. Which I think is probably a good lesson for us to learn with our enemies. That, that God might not, if God's not done with you, he might not be done with them. So, so we come back to, if, if humility paves the way for a continual love for one another and cooperation opens this path where ministry can be multiplied, which just simply allows mercy to keep our relationships open so that those who are far from God can find life in Jesus. What, what, what incredible attitude changes, right? That's why we can start wrapping this up. What, what incredible attitude adjustments here. Now, I get, I admit, uh, this, is, this is a lot to chew on in one morning. Uh, it's a lot of, there's a lot of things going on in just about nine or, or ten verses. But, 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 but each scene comes in and it shows how a lack of love affects our treatment of other people. Right? So, so the disciples would have just stayed bickering on a question that, that they couldn't, nobody would have been satisfied, right? Because somebody, every one of them wants to be the greatest. So, so this lack of love would keep them in contention with one another. Their lack of love would have kept their group being very tight, saying, hey, the, the gospel doesn't go without our endorsement. And their lack of love would have said, hey, let's kill all of our enemies. Let's just end them. So Jesus comes in and he teaches and he models this change in our attitudes. And, and I guess my question as we wrap up is, is, is what would our church look like today if we carried the love of God to our world through an attitude of simple humility, cooperation, and mercy? What, what would that look like here? If when our city describes us and our repu- the reputation that follows us is that they are humble, cooperative, and mercy-filled people. Now, now we say this frequently, that the only way that happens, the only way a church develops a reputation like that is when the people of that church develop a reputation like that. Right? So that, mean, that means you, if you are, uh, if you are 
part of what God is doing here, then you would take these, these moments in these verses and say, yeah, I, I can either compete or I can walk in humility. I can either exclude or I can walk in cooperation. I can go to the mattresses or I can extend mercy to those that I don't like. The reason is, you know, when we do this, we, we live in a way that is counterculture, right? Uh, because, because what a world does, the world will say that, that being the greatest is the most important, right? It'll say that tribalism is king. And again, it says go to the mattresses for those who are your enemies, but that's not the way of the gospel that, 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 that we find. The gospel is not temporal, but it looks eternally. It says, it says we find our worth not in our achievements, but in what Jesus has achieved for us in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then his eventual return. And because of this, we, we get to celebrate not just who we are, but whose we are. And we get to live in a way where we are marked by the love of Jesus and that takes us back to this Last Supper scene where he looks at them and he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are mine. So, I, so our question is, how does, how does Jesus change our attitudes And I find it difficult in these moments when the Bible makes things so plainly clear that I can't hide from them. Like, how does Jesus change my attitude? Am I a more humble person because of who Jesus is? Am I a more inclusive person because of who Jesus is. Now that, that applies for inside the church and outside the church. When, when I see people, is my first reaction prejudice or is it inclusion so that maybe if they are far from God, they can find life in Jesus? Am I more prone because of Jesus Am I more prone toward battle or mercy? And here's what I know. We can find people to, to help us justify those other traits. Right? Some of you are guilty of only going to certain people at certain times because you know they'll rile you up instead of speaking calmness and truth into your story. And you know that because you're ignoring the other people. Oh, well, I don't want to go to them because, you know, they might not tell me what my itching ears want to hear. So the question, how does Jesus change my attitude? And my attitude is changed or revealed through the fruits of my life. So what kind of a people are we becoming? That's all I got. I love you guys. Our desire this week is to love God by loving people, absolutely.
as we pray, as we end, let me make just a couple things available. If you need prayer this morning, like it's difficult to say, how does Jesus change my attitude if I don't know Jesus? We believe that your path to peace and joy as you experience a love that is unmatched comes through him. We would love to tell you about how he has changed our lives. And so we'll have some people over here. If you need prayer this morning, we'll have some people over here who would love to pray with you. We believe in sharing burdens, uh, not just saying, hey, good luck on that. And we believe prayer is the sometimes the entryway, but also sometimes the most powerful weapon we have. And then lastly, if you want to take some time, as we just briefly talked about the Last Supper, out of that Last Supper comes communion, where we stop and we remember what He has done. We have those elements available in the back. I love you. Let's pray. Father, we come to You and we thank You. We thank You that You love us. We thank You that You care for us. We thank You that You move in us and around us and through us. I pray that that you would help us address our our attitudes specifically in these areas. When when it talks about how we love uh, this gospel community, when it talks about how we love just the bride of Christ and then how we love those who we really don't want to love at all. Pray this week we would be a people that when the world examines how we love them, they would know it's because of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys stand as we close out.